Will we ever be able to cure all diseases? And what would a world where this were possible look like? The rise of cell and gene therapies in the last decade or so has been remarkable. But as we learned last week, economic factors could yet stall their more widespread adoption. In this second part of our double bill on the future of cell and gene, we examine another aspect impacting the accessibility of cell and gene therapies, manufacturing. Will new and improved processes make these therapies a more viable treatment route for patients? Do logistics and timescales really hold the key to widespread adoption worldwide? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug in to Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, will the manufacturing plant of the future take cell and gene into the mainstream? Cell and gene therapies are amongst the most important innovations in medicine today. As we heard last week from experts across the globe, many see them heralding a new age of medicine. One where we don't simply treat symptoms over many years, but harness the innate power of the human body itself to deliver a lasting cure. However, they remain pretty restricted for patients to access. So what then is the key for wider adoption? As we learned from Dan and our other guests on the last episode, pricing is a key factor. Now, of course, there are a multitude of ways to begin making cell and gene therapies cheaper for the healthcare system. But one of the most significant, and indeed the most interesting, is in the manufacture of these products. Because manufacturing cell and gene therapies, and in particular cell therapies, isn't the same as conventional biologics or small molecule manufacturing. They are in many ways living drugs, which deliver modified cells to patients. The key being that they should still be biologically active upon administration. And that's what makes them difficult to manufacture. As Kath Mackay made clear at the end of our last episode, this presents a huge number of challenges for those involved in their manufacture. It's work which requires the utmost care and quality control and many in the industry think we could be doing more to improve current methods. So could we conceivably make efficiency gains in the methods we currently use to manufacture cell therapies? Can pharma learn anything from the approach of other industries with high levels of process automation? And is the where we make these products equally as important as the how? This is what I wanted to find out. So I got in touch with a few different people who've made it their business to change the future of manufacturing. First up, I had a chat with Ed Stone, a man who knows a thing or two about the subject, given he's our head of cell and gene here at TTP. After a PhD specialising in vehicle dynamics from the University of Cambridge, Ed started working at TTP some 18 years ago, most of which has been spent specialising in cell and gene. And as you'd guess, he's seen some pretty remarkable developments over that time not least in the manufacturing realm, which he's been focusing on for several years. His work here spans everything from commercial strategy through to technology development and on to production. I sat down with Ed in our studio to find out some more about just how a cell therapy is made.
So yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, Ed. It's the second part of a two-part episode where we're talking a bit about more in depth about cell therapy manufacture. So I was wondering if we could start by talking about how our a cell th- how a cell therapy is made. Maybe think about CAR T manufacturing. Is that's probably the most complex one? Certainly, yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. CAR T um, uh, emotologist therapies is often described the closest thing to, to sci-fi I've ever had the, the chance to work on. Uh, as a mechanical engineer, um, they're genuinely mind-blowing. So it, a personalised medicine, a truly personalised medicine. So in the case of an autologous therapy, you take from the patient uh, some blood. It then undergoes a cell selection process, depending on the therapy. Typically, CAR T cells um, will be selected. So yeah, you would take the immune cells that you want to target. After that, you undertake a modification of those cells. And that really, to me, is the, the really impressive part of the process. So um, the cells will be edited to give them the ability to do the job, in the case of a CAR-T therapy, to, to fight cancer and to kill, kill cancer. So immune cells that would otherwise um, uh, fight other diseases can now be modified through that process to go and fight cancer. That therapy will then be packaged um, for delivery back to the patient taken to um, hospital site um, and transfused into the patient. Typically, a couple of weeks for that process to happen. And all of that requires really careful synchronization. So um, while that's happening, quite often there'll be some patient preparation going on. You've got the complexity. This is a really ill patient. They're often referred to as third. Therapy just approved in the last three days, the Janssen Legend therapy, a fifth-line therapy. So you've got very, very sick patients um, who have been through multiple courses of treatment. And so you're trying to carefully synchronize this manufacturing process with uh, a preparation of a patient um, at a hospital site whilst they're still um, very, very ill. Bringing all that together um, is obviously a logistical challenge. Yeah, I mean, you, you just see some of the stories that about cures, about... 10-year rates of uh, remission being fairly negligible. So, yeah, no doubt they're, they're, they're transformed. I was just kind of wondering what that time criticality you're talking about, is that present in other manufacturing uh, processes or is it particular to these cell therapies? So it's pretty much exclusive to, to cell therapies and particularly autologous cell therapies where driven by a couple of things really because it's you, you can't batch this therapy. It's not something you can make in advance at the moment. Uh, it is done when you have a patient that needs to be treated um, in front of you. And because they're very sick, you've obviously got a limited window um, to deliver that. So it is almost unique. Um, and it's something that the industry is looking at ways to go away from. So allogeneic being a potential route, that means a, uh, a master cell bank can be given to many patients. That removes that time criticality. There is clearly concerns about delivering that, but they're largely commercial concerns. If you lose a batch of, th- of cells for an allogeneic therapy, it's a commercial concern. With a patient therapy like autologists, if you have a manufacturing run that fails, you may not have another chance. That patient may die. I think it's often quite a useful analogy when you're manufacturing an autologous therapy, whilst the cells are not at the patient, they're away in a remote facility. But thinking about that as you would think about a patient and handling a patient is that critical. If you lose that batch of cells, that patient 100 miles away, whatever, may ultimately die as a result of that manufacturing failure. So kind of taking it on on site and and off site and having to take such delicate care of the cells means that we can get these transformative therapies. But what does does it actually mean in terms of the handling? How, How careful do you have to be and who has to be responsible for this process? 
So there, there are parallels in in traditional therapies in a way, and, and for better or worse, the frameworks that are adopted are largely similar. The, the positive point of that is there are well-established um, processes and procedures for chain of custody. Um, the subtle difference is, of course, you have to make sure that the, the cells you take from a patient are the cells you return to a patient, whereas with a uh, traditional therapy, the burden of proof is that we are delivering um, to a patient the right therapy. Here, we have one therapy that exists in the world that must return to an individual patient. So it's a trickier track and trace problem. The downside of that, and we see this a lot in other space in cell therapy, is we we suffer a lot of, of legacy that may or may not be appropriate to this industry. So there are differences. Um, and because we're op- operating in similar constraints um, to traditional therapeutics, sometimes that can hold us back. I think an interesting version of that is around QC. And we often apply the same QC techniques. There's there's a lot of good reason for that is they're proven safe, effective, people are comfortable with those techniques. The challenge is, of course, um, <laughs> very simple one. We have a litre of material, sometimes less to work with, rather than 500 litres or 1,000 litres we might have with a traditional biologic therapy. As a result, the QC, um, every time we're taking uh, a few mils out of the therapy, we're taking an appreciable amount away. So I think the, that that burden of legacy um, combined with the advantage of being able to reutilize things, I think we have to be quite careful about what, what we're taking from other places versus what, um, what we need to invent new for cell therapy. One thing which makes CAR-T therapies challenging to manufacture is that the starting material is a patient's own cells. These are obviously in limited supply and that makes batching impossible. This is truly personalised medicine, and as such, new methods are needed to create them. So how do they compare with traditional biologics manufacturing? Sure, the process is going to be different, but is it possible to reuse similar equipment or to do it in the same premises? To find out, I got in touch with Mike Lamicki. Mike is the Senior Director of Science and Industry Affairs at the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine and has over 20 years of R&D experience in biomaterials, medical devices, and regenerative medicine. He's a strong believer in the transformative potential of the field, and how affecting repair or replacement of damaged or dysfunctional tissue could help address many areas of unmet clinical need. And this passion really shone through when I spoke to him from his base in Pennsylvania. I started off by asking him about the complexities of cell therapy manufacture, and whether there were any best practices from biologics manufacturing which the industry is able to follow. So we often hear that cell therapies are really complex and expensive to manufacture, but what what does that actually mean? If you kind of compare it to something like biologics manufacture, how much more complex is it, really? Yeah, I guess one way to think about it is uh, it's really biologic complexity that we're talking about and cells the biology of cells and their mechanisms of action are much more complex than say a virus uh, or or certainly a protein or certainly the way that a small molecule acts there's an analogy that i sometimes use uh in biology complexity tends to increase with size Mm -hmm. with physical size so if you think about a 
viral vector used for gene therapy at a nanometer scale, which is orders of magnitude larger than um, small molecule. And then uh, cells, cell therapies that we're talking about today are at a, you know, a micrometer scale, which in, are orders of magnitude larger than monoclonal antibodies. And then, of course, if you look at the, the size of organ systems or the size of you or me, uh, there's much more complexity. So I, I think that just illustrates that, um, you know, and, and the other factor is the industry of cell therapy and cell therapy manufacturing is relatively young compared to uh, certainly small molecules or uh, or proteins or e- even monoclonal antibody manufacture. So we're still learning about the biology and we're still learning about the best way to manufacture uh, cell therapies. Yeah, and, and is there anything that we can learn from from biologics manufacturer? Are there any any processes that, that are common and that we can carry forwards? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think we're a little bit more focused on cell therapies today on, on, the, on the gene therapy side with respect to viral vector manufacture. And of course, some viral vectors are used during cell therapy uh-huh. manufacturing. Uh, there, there are a fair number of processes that are more common with traditional biologics manufacturing in terms of the, the um, uh, suspension culture and the types of bioreactors that are used and, uh, and downstream processing techniques and equipment, for example. Although they're not direct one-for-one swap outs, you really have to optimize and, and make changes for the viral vectors. And again, the, the field is still learning how to do that mm. in, in the best way. Um, cell therapy is really, uh, you know, in terms of expanding cells and manipulating cells, it's really kind of unique. And it's been adapted from laboratory-based processes that were largely developed uh, by academic innovators. And, um, you know, the, the knowledge base there goes back decades, but those processes have never been used and they don't tend to work very well uh-huh. at scale. So that that's one of the big challenges the field is facing is they're really, it's really a new paradigm. So could you even say that there is a, a best practice in, in CAR-T manufacture, for example? Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're trying to develop that. And uh, actually, since you, uh, since you asked the question, uh, ARM, the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, uh, the, the group that I work for, uh, is actively working with our members who are therapeutic developers, including CAR-T therapeutic developers, on a case study called ACEL, which describes best practices, uh, sort of a, a snapshot of as they exist today because they're constantly evolving. Uh, for and, and the case is a uh, hypothetical autologous CAR-T. And the learnings that we're trying to take are, it's a combination of the experience to date of subject matter experts. And we're, we're fortunate enough uh, at ARM to be working with many of the best, the best companies, and the best individuals within those companies and leveraging their experience. But also um, to kind of circle back to your earlier question, there, there are things, uh, although the processes are very different, that we can learn from biologics and small molecule manufacture in terms of the approach that you take to process development and process optimization. And, and there, uh, we use quality by design principles. So ACEL is a case study using quality by design principles to describe the manufacture of uh, autologous CAR-T. Quality by design has been around, uh, but even even before the pharma industry, it was used, um, you know, in the electronics and automotive industry. But it basically describes uh, a rigorous way to 
uh, layout, the, the, what's called the um, product profile, target product profile, or quality target product profile of your product, uh, identifying which attributes you believe to be critical, and then uh, describing a, a way using both risk analysis and empirical techniques like design of experiments to test that premise uh, to determine, in fact, which are the critical attributes or critical quality attributes of your product and uh, also to determine which elements of your process are critical, so-called critical process parameters that have the greatest effect on these critical quality attributes. So we're, we're trying to use that very well-established methodology in, in, in the context of the new uh, paradigm of cell therapy manufacture. That's the key thing about cell therapy manufacture. It's such a new realm. There's even debate about which manufacturing paradigm is most appropriate. And while you can use certain hardware from normal biologics manufacture, as Mike notes, it's not so simple as a swap-in, swap-out situation. But building up processes that are truly fit for purpose is one thing. Ensuring quality control is also a really vital factor, especially given that you're working with live cells in the process. Quality control, or QC for short, is something I wanted to dig into further. And serendipitously, some of my colleagues were able to introduce me to Felix Montero Julian, fresh from discussing QC at the Facilitate Conference in Miami. Felix is a scientific director of the healthcare business of Biomerieux, with over 25 years of experience in industrial analytics and clinical diagnostics. Felix is extensively involved in the implementation and acceptance of rapid and alternative microbiological methods with an array of technical experience across the cell and gene therapy manufacturing process. I got in touch with Felix after he returned from Florida for a detailed conversation about some of the challenges the industry is currently facing. What, what other aspects of the, of the QC are you looking at and saying, actually, this, you know, there's opportunities to do this better? Sure. The, 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 the other part or the other uh, set of, quality control methods that the companies are using, obviously, is what we call the safety testing, right? So we need to be sure that all these products at the end are free of microbes. So in that case, we, we, we talk about sterility, even if the term sterility in this case is not appropriate, because we are not sterilizing the products, right? So it's more yeah, that, that's a, that's are, a distinction, isn't it? Because normally you might, you know, boil it or something. Exactly. You know, you cannot filter, you cannot boil, you cannot irradiate, etc. That are the current processes to sterilize, you know, a product. And in this case, we are we are talking about asepsy. You know, we need to make an aseptic product, hmm. and we need to be sure that at the end of the of the process, the product is free of germs and could be uh, bacteria, yeast, and molds, but also mycoplasma and endotoxins. So those are the three uh, mandatory uh, tests that needs to be performed in these final products uh, in order to release the products and be able to ship to the, to the patients. And how, how, how is that done currently? How do you test for the sterility at the moment? Yeah, so the sterility uh, currently is done using what we call grow-based methods. So the samples are incubated in culture media and uh, incubated at two, two different temperatures 
and different culture media for aerobic and anaerobic bacteria for detection incubate for five, seven days. And then if the sample is negative, the product is released. In the case of positive, obviously, the investigation needs to happen, you know, to understand where the contamination comes from. But obviously, when you have a process that takes three weeks and you have still one week or more to get the, the results of the sterility, it doesn't make sense. Why? So the the goal is really to to try to reduce the time to results for the sterility testing uh, in particular. The mycoplasma is testing uh, based on what we call the nuclear acid-based methods. Mm -hmm. So we look at the detection of the uh, mycoplasma genetic material in the samples in order to see if a potential mycoplasma contamination occurred during the manufacturing. And that can be quite rapid, really, because you're thinking about you know, PCR amplification. That's correct. That's correct. And, uh, and and there is new technologies in the market now in which we um, m reduce the the hands-on times and the needs for um, uh, a specific knowledge on how to handle nuclear acid testing using some what we call lab in pouch uh, products. Okay. So everything is needed to perform a molecular test is now containing one single pouch. So any anybody with no experience in PCR technologies can run the assay, also in and get results in in one in one to one and a half hours. Yeah, that's that's something I was uh, w wondering about as well. Is so at the moment you've got these therapies which pretty much you can only really use them when patients very close to end of life. They've exhausted all the other treatment avenues. What would you hope for, and if we were going to be able to use this more widely? So the 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 companies and, and the biotechs and the labs are working very hard to try to reduce, first of all, the time to manufacture these products and try to improve all the analytical methods, analytical technologies that are used to provide accurate and rapid results here. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the moment, obviously, uh, all the products in the market are based in autologous approaches. So there is other approaches that are under investigation using allogenic, allogenic approaches. But in the case of the autologous, so recently um, we, we, we saw a publication from Novartis in particular describing now uh, what we call a T-charge method. It's a rapid method to manufacture these products. Mm -hmm. And basically they describe the capabilities to manufacture CAR-Ts in two days, two to three days. Can can you give us an example of kind of how time critical the the cell therapy process is for for these patients? So I have one, I have one one example. So I had the opportunity to attend end of January the Advanced Therapy Week, and I had a chance to talk to Tom Whitehead, is the father of Emily Whitehead. She was treated by a leukemia a very rare leukemia and, and basically uh, she was at the last line of treatment too right mm -hmm. the doctors don't have any any more um, therapies in the therapeutic arsenal to treat it so um, they the, the, the doctors and decided to to go into this CAR T therapy trial 
that came later Chimeria. Okay. And she treated when she was seven years old in 2012. And uh, the, the, she was the first child in the world to have her immune cells activated to fight cancer. And, and it worked. The, this young girl that was, is the, is the main example of what the CAR T therapies can, can do because today she is considered cancer free. Um, and, and Tom was mentioning during our discussion. So they, they create this foundation, White Health Foundation, because, because of the cost. So many families cannot afford to this to this cause, but however there is kids sick, right? So they needs to be treated. And he mentioned that there is some examples in which the therapies arrive too late to save the life of some kids. So meaning that sometimes one day or two days can make a big difference um, with how the kids can be treated in that cases. So. Um, these examples, uh, for me, is is very um, it talks to me, right? So mm. because this is what we are trying to do, so minimizing the time to um, to results, getting the results more, more faster, and get the products more quicker, and be able to treat patients in time. We keep coming back to the Emily Whitehead case on this podcast. It's a remarkable example of the curative power of modern medicine and a true vindication of the lasting power of cell therapies. But I was interested by how Felix went back to focus on the importance of timeframes in this process. Given you're dealing with living drugs here, as well as very sick patients, reducing the time from manufacture to hospital as much as possible is a key consideration for people working in the field. We already talked at length about allogeneic treatments in our previous episode and the power they hold in the future of this space. But there's another aspect of cell therapy manufacture which is also useful to consider. It's a seemingly simple logistical question. Should we make these therapies in a central facility or as close to the patient as possible? I went back to Ed to ask about the importance of this distinction. And what about near patient manufacture? So the CDMO would, would typically be your external manufacturer. So you'd send the cells away and then you'd transform them and bring them back. But what about um, in-hospital manufacture? What's, where does that fit in? So that, that's one of the great debates um, is, is what is the right manufacturing model? Largely at the moment, things are sent off to ballroom style manufacturing facilities and then returned to the patient. However, there's a lot of speculation that moving things near patient clearly solves a major logistical headache. Um, we no longer have to ship things and return them. And as I say, as the manufacturing time becomes shorter and shorter, it becomes more and more compelling to start to do that. In the future, we will need to work very closely with the regulators to find a way that everyone is comfortable that that is, um, is an acceptable way to make things. But for a therapy that is manufactured in hours, it, it makes absolute sense. And the idea of having to, to ship that off to manufacture it at a remote site seems uh, ultimately unsatisfactory. Are we seeing any evidence that the regulators are kind of giving a bit more leeway or kind of adapting to the potential for, for these sorts of manufacturing techniques? So I think in the main, the, the, the regulators have been incredibly collaborative in this space. On the specific point of near patient, we're not sufficiently close yet that we've really challenged that and that hard with the regulators, at least in the conversations I've been privy to. One of the 
things that was really important in early days was a recognition that actually these therapies were quickly curing people. And so moving the trials forwards at a pace um, on ethical grounds because recognising that actually to deny more patients access to this in the interest of just continuing a trial was the wrong thing to do. In the main, it's been it's been a good opportunity for the regulators in the field to look at how they work together and try and move that forwards in an age where medicine is changing. Yeah, and think about that that change. Um, typically, when an industry changes, you you kind of get these disruptive forces coming in, say startups overtaking or kind of replacing some of the existing incumbents in the market is is that something that's looked like it's happening at the moment or how does the dynamic work between cell therapy startups and, and big pharma the nature of the industry historically has been it had a birth that was largely driven by by startups i would would assert um in uh, the likes of kite and juno and bluebird novartis interestingly were a very early mover um for a large pharma those companies progressed the field, and then we saw the usual kind of consolidation with the um, the startup being bought, um, quite bought by Gilead, for example. And, and we continue to see more startups spawning, and as they prove to be successful, numerous of those being acquired um, by large large pharma. But I think we are seeing some interesting things, um, and we mentioned CDMOs and the nature of things like resilience popping up in the, the US, where you are now seeing companies that have at least as far as I'm aware, no interest really in being bought. Now, Resilience is looking much more to, to manufacture therapies um, and to solve the gap in really taking the therapies potentially earlier on from um, the startups, helping them use best-in-class um, tools, techniques, and approaches to, um, to develop them through trials, potentially with unique tools and technologies from what I understand, and then be the manufacturing partner um, that continues throughout the product life. To produce those therapies. I think that's a really interesting play. And so I think we are starting to see um, some things challenging the, the existing industry dynamics. And it certainly wouldn't surprise me um, if we don't see more of that over the coming years, particularly given, I think, how significant this market is recognised as potentially being in a few years' time, um, which naturally attracts capital and attracts disruption and attracts new business models. It's interesting that some of the main issues of cell therapy manufacture are on the face of it quite simple to understand. Speed and logistics. In solving these two issues and combining them with exciting new approaches like allogeneic therapies, those bottlenecks that cell therapy manufacturer has been experiencing could be a thing of the past. And how are they going to be solved? Well, as ever with the life sciences, there are a number of new agile startups who are teaming up with pharma to expedite these processes. As Ed told me, we are seeing real progress in how we address inefficiencies with some disruptive technologies set to enter the market in the coming years. But startups on their own are just one thing. The challenges here are beyond the purview of a single company to solve. They'll require collaboration and technological innovation within the entire pharma ecosystem to overcome them. I went back to Mike to see what other aspects of the manufacturing chain need to be improved in the future. So, in your opinion, would you say that, um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but is, is manufacturing a really key aspect of of kind of getting cell therapies established and getting more people access to them so uh 
That's pretty much exclusively what I focus on. So my biased answer is going to be yes. <laughs> it's not entirely correct. Um, I think that we will not be able to resolve patient access issues unless we can effectively scale and resolve the CMC uh, chemistry manufacturing <laughs> and controls and you know the, the uh, industry parlance issues that that the industry is facing right now. There are other uh, important issues related to uh, market access, for example, mm -hmm. and reimbursement and appropriate models for reimbursement of these therapies. I, I can't speak to those in, you know, in any kind of detail. Uh, it's just not my area of expertise, but we, that is an area of focus that we have at ARM. Okay. And uh, there are some of my colleagues are, uh, you know, spending every day focused on that. And so, you know, perhaps the topic of a future podcast. So, yes, I mean, the, the, the manufacturing is is complex. Uh, and kind of what we've described today, there's, there's lots of effort going into resolving some of the different aspects of the, of the manufacturing challenges. What, what, so you, you, you mentioned market access and being able to get to more patients. I mean, what what is the ultimate goal? Do you, do you see cell therapy being more of a, a second line or even front line uh, option. Yeah, I certainly think I certainly think it's possible. Um, I mean, we've, we're already seeing that it is possible as a second line in certain uh, liquid tumors or hematologic malignancies. Um, you know, we've we've seen data from Kite now, and I think also BMS that have shown that it can outperform the standard of care in second line. Uh, That's I really think, important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just a question of time till we start seeing that uh, first line. Um, you know, whether that's going to be an autologous therapy, allogeneic, I don't know. Um, and, and, and what the specific target is or specific cell type that's being used, you know, is it, is it a T cell or NK cell or a macrophage? Uh, I don't know, but there's, there's so many different uh, r really interesting approaches being taken. I think it's just a, a question of time. What is the scope for for reduction in in costs? Are we are we talking it's going to halve or, or or ten times cheaper? I mean, what 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 should we be realistically looking for? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think some of the um, there aren't a lot of numbers out there, and that's uh, the obvious reasons is there's you know there's some competition, so people are a little bit careful about the information. But it, if you think if you think of things like uh, costs of clean rooms and manual labor as being major contributors. And, you know, you can drive those down by an order of magnitude. Uh, you, you can easily make a case for more than, more than cutting the cost in half, even, even cutting it potentially by a factor of 10. Uh, where are people going to get to yet? I think it, it's still, uh, it's it's mostly still calculations, you know, <laughs> um, but and and you know very well thought out calculations. But uh, you know, in, in in practice, in practice, we're not there yet. Um, you know, and I think you have to be careful. You know, when you when you talk about manufacturing costs, because uh, you know, for example, there, there's a lot of potential in allogeneic. Uh, to to scale up and reduce cost per dose in doing doing that, that way, yes, uh, yeah. To optimize your manufacturing process uh, because you know you have access to more of the donor cells. Um, you don't have to be quite as so careful you know, but, with 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 the cells, right. yeah, yeah. But, but on the other but on the other hand, uh, 
it still costs a lot of money to qualify a donor. So, um, but you can spread that across the, you can spread that across the many patients that they can. And, and, you know, you, you, you can see with a decentralized approach, you know, there's, there's some inherent logic to the argument that, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to drive down costs if, uh, you know, you're taking everything closer to the point of care where the patient is, but, but also, you know, fixed costs at a medical center can be pretty high. Um, so, I, I don't really, I, you know, I haven't really seen convincing numbers that would say that from a cost perspective, one approach is better than another right now. I think there's a lot of uh, theories out there, a lot of good theories, but, um, you know, it kind of remains to be seen where we're going to end up. So beyond pricing and economics, what's this going to be like in reality? What does the cell therapy manufacturing plant of the future look like? And how are we going to widen access so that more of these extraordinary therapies are going to be developed to tackle not just certain types of cancers, but all of them? I asked Felix for his thoughts on the future. Are there any, are there any other th- strategies that people are looking at in order to get it to a, to a wider market? So I'm thinking about just greater numbers of people, but also people in different areas of the world where we don't currently have the manufacturing capability um what what's the what's the outlook uh, like for those people yeah this is a good point because um the other approach um the market is following is to develop some point of care manufacturers so really building labs inside of the hospitals or near to the hospitals in which they can handle the manufacture of these products so there is companies uh, building business cases, providing uh, already built labs that meet all the pharma requirements in terms of GMP and uh, training people. But obviously, you know, there is a huge uh, research in academic labs, in hospitals also, around how improve the CAR-T treatments, what are the new targets that can be benefits of these approaches, uh, and so on. So today the CARTs are mainly for leukemias and lymphomas because for solid tumors there is still some challenge, you know, linked to the to the kind of uh, of tumors. But in, uh, in but but the science is advancing so fast that we are expecting to have other approaches using this same concept to treat uh, cancer, solid cancer. That's really exciting. And and. Um... We kind of talk about a lot of innovation and and potentially some evolution, but what what's your vision of the future manufacturing process? So we we started off by describing quite a long winded and cumbersome process, but what what would be an ideal in your eyes for for manufacturing the therapy of the future? I mean, the ideal will be to have to be able to manufacture these products as is currently done in 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 two three days, you know. And, and having um, a technology that can provide in one shot all these different parameters that are needed to assess the efficacy and the safety of the products. So, and, and also another point that is, is very important to keep in mind with the CAR-T treatments is all these side effects, right? The cytokine release syndrome and so on. 
And, and there is also some research to identify some biomarkers to, to predict if a patient will go into the CRS or not. So anticipate the, the palliative treatments. So being able to have analytical technologies that provides information about what will happen in the future, this is how we, we should go, you know. And, uh, and being able to integrate all these technologies in a, in a single unit uh, of manufacturing could be the best the best way we can provide these products quickly and in time and cost effective. And, and is that a single facility making many different uh, treatments? So, um, kind of a standardized process for handling lots of different patient samples. Uh, that's one model, right? Love lots of different patient samples and also at some point different CARTIs, right? So, for example, uh, the same the same facility building the CD19 CAR-T or BCMA CAR-T or, or others in the future, you know, having a standard process and a standard way to control and a standard way to, to transform these cells. And if, and if we had that, do you, do you think that would have a, a big impact on the cost of these as well? Um, so kind of coming down from these hundreds of thousands um, more in the, into the tens of thousands of dollars for. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and particular with these new models of manufacturing, and also definitively a way can uh, slow down the cost here or decrease the cost is the allogenic approaches for sure, right? Because if for one donor you can treat 100 patients, that this is roughly the numbers that are managed right. today, you know. So uh, this can make a big, big difference in terms of cost of goods. And, and cost of treatments, you know. Whether it's through centralized or decentralized approaches, or moving towards allogeneic over autologous treatments, improving times from manufacture to patient has been the thing which all of my guests today have stressed as vital to the continued growth of cell therapy. But of course, this comes with cost. Yes, curing rather than treating diseases should be our goal. Ethically, it's pretty much undeniable. And once the costs come down, hopefully the benefits can be felt by all. I've been really fascinated by the role of manufacturing in the cell and gene story. Too often, the field is talked about in theoretical terms as the future of cancer treatment. And in fairness, the performance, at least in the trials we've seen to date, isn't in doubt. It's a technology which will, one day, allow us to cure cancer. Not just send it into remission. But so much of the application comes down to good old-fashioned manufacturing engineering. By improving the times, costs and processes involved in the manufacturing of these incredible treatments, the case against their use becomes negligible and more widespread use means saving more lives. And by doing that, we can truly unleash the potential of these therapies, which could well change the way we think about all diseases. Ed has some pretty profound thoughts on this, so I'll let him have the final word. It's really compelling and it you know, makes you think that cell and gene therapies are here to stay, right? Because they're now showing proof that they have such a big impact on, on people's lives. 
Yes, I, I, it's, it's really interesting kind of how the narrative has, has shifted um, in the last few years around cell and gene therapies. Um, it, from being, even 10 years ago, the idea of an autologous cell therapy was, was debatable whether we were going to see them um, even approved, let alone utilised commercially, to a narrative of we're actually talking about a third age of medicine. Um, initially, we had small molecules, things discovered by random, by things blowing through windows, to protein-based therapies that use biology and more sophisticated molecules, but at the end of the day are a static thing to actually harnessing the power of um, the human cell, the power of the immune system, and editing cells to, to correct defects. It, it, it is being spoken about as, as a new age of medicine, and I think third age of medicine, and I think there is... I think an increased sense we are only just scratching the surface of what can be done now that we can really harness the machinery um, of of the human body um, rather than dealing with things in the way of molecules. I think that for me is is the step that's been made um, in the last few years and, and has the potential to transform medicine over the next coming decades. That's all for today. Thanks to all of our guests, Ed, Mike, and Felix for their amazing insight and thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week to look at an industry that's been thrust into the spotlight in recent years. Diagnostics. From the lows of the Theranos scandal to being hailed as a panacea for all things Covid, it's certainly been a bumpy ride. We'll be looking into all that and more next week. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bohr. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.